I was used for sex for over two decades. I was victimized as a child by a family member. I was abused and loaned out by my husband. And then I was trafficked in over 14 states for almost three years. I'm a human trafficking survivor. My story starts pretty early, unfortunately. I was abused as a child by a family member. And that abuse shaped a lot of the decisions that I made as an adult and a young teenager just really affected a lot of the information processing that I did and how I viewed the world. Just with that victimization as a child, it changes kind of the whole outlay of where your life can go. The first bad decision that kind of stemmed from that childhood abuse, <clears throat> I got married 18 years old to the first guy that said that he liked me because I had been convinced that I was never <laughs> going to ever get married or be found attractive. And so as soon as someone said they liked me, I jumped on it. <laughs> I was like, this might be my only chance. The first red flag should have been I was 18, he was 31 years old. That was a large enough age difference. It should have been creepy to me, but because of my past, it just was kind of normal. During that time, that I was with him. My husband was posting ads on Craigslist to have men come rape me. He was using all of our money on online porn sites. The Google Chrome history was just porn for eight, 10, 12 hours at a time. I was working extensive hours trying to pay our bills. Come to find out he wasn't paying our bills. He was doing online gambling and porn. I. I left him because my husband then admitted to me that he was sexually attracted to children. That was such a trigger for me from my past. I just, I had, I didn't even know what to do besides run, like as fast as I could. I left my husband. I was kind of doing this crazy, promiscuous drugs, young adult life that I was trying to heal from all of the pain of my childhood and my failed marriage and the fact that I I didn't really feel like I had goals in life. I had no real hope. I had no view of a future for me. It ever, I was so consumed by the pain that I couldn't even imagine a future. When I got pregnant with my son, started getting my life together. I got sober the day I found out that I was pregnant. I never did drugs again. My mom came and picked me up and she kind of saved me. <laughs> and I moved in with my mom and I started getting my life back together. When my son was about two years old, I had kind of ventured back into the dating world and I met a man online where you would have thought I learned the lesson the first time. I met this guy online, we went out to dinner, everything seemed like it was fine. The next day he asked if he could come over for lunch. When he showed up at my house, he violently raped me in front of my child. When the police came, they said that was the most gruesome rape scene they've ever seen. He had sharpened his fingernails to a point and I had over 400 open wounds on my thighs and my vagina. It was just covered. Like he came with the intent to do harm. I was living in a rental property that was not very happy with the situation. They kind of felt like I had brought it on myself. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that's what the owner said to me, <laughs> letting strangers in my house. So, um, my dad didn't know what to do with me at that point either. And I was kind of already over the relationship with him. So he just dropped me and my son off at a shelter and said, good luck. So I'm 24 years old with a two and a half year old child 
living in a domestic violence shelter 45 minutes away from my family and my home and any of my connections. And I was probably the most vulnerable, hopeless that I had ever been at that point. That was, that was probably one of the worst times. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a job. I didn't have money. I was relying on someone else to feed me and my child. So I met this girl that was living at the shelter with me. That's the way all the good stories start. And <laughs> she was like, hey, you should download this app. It's called Glide and you can meet people from like all over. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, it's something to do. Cause at that point I had nothing to do with my life. I downloaded Glide and it was a lot of, a lot of foreigners, a lot of odd messages from Indian men wanting to marry you for $25,000 in a green card. So I met this man on Glide. He told me that his name was Martin and super attractive, right? Like super cute, clean cut, just dressed really nice. Always had on like designer Gucci belts and, you know, fancy shoes. And he looked like he took very well care of himself. And so we started video chatting and we video chatted every day um, from October to January. So it was a pretty consistent relationship. I asked him, it was probably two or three weeks into the relationship that I was like, hey, why are you always in hotel rooms? Like, why are you never at your house? <laughs> and he was like, oh, no, I, I work in marketing. I'm a, I, I sell for this company and I travel around. And he had a name badge from the company. Um, and he even was like, I'll send you my W-2s so you know how much money I make and I can take care of you. He sent me everything verified in employment that did not exist. I had built such a relationship over the phone and he was telling me how great it was in New York and the job field was so much better out there and I could make so much more money and I could really build a life for me and my son and he played on those vulnerabilities that I had. The lack of income and the lack of support and the fact that I didn't have family members and he's like, I'll be here, you can stay with me, it's gonna, you know, we were building this relationship. I thought he was my boyfriend. So he invited me to New York. I rode a, 20, a Greyhound for 24 hours. <laughs> and when I got to the Greyhound station in New York, we go to his house and he had carried my bags and everything for me. And we hopped in a taxi. I remember walking out and I saw the New York Times building and I was like, I've made it. Like I've made it in life. <laughs> it's New York. And we got to his house and he said, I want to take you out to dinner. And I was like, okay, cool. That'd be awesome. So he goes, did you bring any like nice clothes? Do you have some high heels with you? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, put on the nicest outfit that you have. Make sure you wear heels. And I said, okay. So I got ready. I got dressed. He left and went and ran some errands. When he came back to pick me up, we hopped in a taxi and we drove to this like kind of scary part of town, but pretty much all of New York looks like a scary part of town. So it, <laughs> I didn't really think much of it. We drive into this industrial park looking area. There's lots of fences and um, like construction vehicles. And it just didn't really look like somewhere you would go to go out to dinner. And I'm like, what are we doing? And he's like, I'm gonna explain it all to you. He goes, so when you get out, he goes, you just make sure you stay on the street. He's like, so you're gonna walk up and he goes, the cars will stop and they'll either like honk at you or someone will flash their lights or maybe they'll just wave their hand out the window. He's like, you go up to them 
and they're going to ask you how much and you tell them it's 60 for head or 80 for sex. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, we've got to go out to dinner, but you got to get the money first. And I'm like, wait, hold on. And he's like, yeah, let me see your phone. I'll program my number in it. I hand him my phone and it's gone out the window. That had my driver's license, my debit cards, my only way out of the situation. Let me tell you, I will never buy another phone case that has a wallet attached to it because you lose one, you lose them all. <laughs> and so when he threw that phone wallet combo out the window, I was stuck. I couldn't even call. I mean, I had my mom's number memorized, but what am I going to tell her? I'm in New York. Come get me. And I'm 25 years old and I'm not really at a point where I'm trying to admit defeat. My pride had well taken over by that point. So the, after that first night, um, I, I complied. I did what he asked me to do. And he was so proud of me. He was so excited. He sell, We did. We went out to dinner. We got drunk. We partied and he took me to a club. I had never been to a club like that, like in Manhattan. It's a different level. And it fueled this desire in me to make the person I'm with proud. And as much as I didn't like having to have sex with these random men, the the validation that came from handing him the money and saying, look what I did. I did, I did good. I did what you taught me. It became the survival tactic. That was how I kept going. I was, he was so proud of me and it made it okay. Unfortunately, there were many times where I didn't make my minimum and I didn't make enough money or I backtalked and I ended up with a busted lip or black eyes or bruises or hair taken out of my, I, he pulled chunks of hair out of my head, throwing me across the room. He would punish us with workouts. He made me run suicides at a basketball court until I was literally vomiting. I couldn't even get up out of the bed to go pee because my legs like would not work. <laughs> he pistol whipped me when I tried to leave and I got 16 staples in the back of my head. He gave me two days off though. After I got 16 staples in the back of my head, he gave me 48 hours in a hotel. I got to order food and I, he paid for the room. I didn't even have to go down to the office and pay for it. <laughs> the Stockholm syndrome is so real, is so real. He became the savior for situations that he created. In a survival mentality, all you can focus on is the good, because if you focus on the bad, you're going to kill yourself or run away <laughs> and then kill yourself. <laughs> so the mental like captivity the the promises of you know other girls would come for a little while some stayed for six months some were there for three weeks and he'd say they're just paying into our retirement don't worry about it don't don't pay attention to them they're paying into our retirement we're gonna get married we're gonna have five sons so between the promise of this future for a child that I no longer even have because I disappeared in New York in a prostitution ring. My son was signed over to a guardian. He had me convinced I was doing what was right. And on top of that, I was being the only thing I was ever going to be. 
He told me every single day. I, he said, do you know why I love you? Because you're a dirty whore. And he reminded me every single day that that was all I would ever be. Everybody says, well, why didn't you leave? Well, I tried. People are like, well, but, but you were outside. You were walking on the street. There were people. Yeah. But I wasn't alone. Like, I was being watched. I was being watched from around the corner or down the street. And there were rules. As a hoe, you are not allowed to walk on the sidewalk. If you walk on the sidewalk, a pimp can take you. And you are now his property because you broke the rules. They cannot touch you if you are in the street. There's, It's an entirely different world. I hate it because people are like, oh, the game, the game. But I mean, it really is. It's a giant game. It's a game with people's lives. When your life has been nothing but trauma after trauma after trauma, sometimes it's nice to at least know what trauma to expect. The comfortability that comes with knowing what's gonna happen every day. I knew if I didn't make my minimum, I was gonna get the crap beat out of me. He would say we were not allowed to do anything without protection. But there were so many days that I had to do things without protection and charge extra because if I didn't make that minimum, the possibility of getting syphilis was a lot better than the possibility of getting dead. And so you just have to, it's a risk versus reward and there's not really any reward. So it's just risk versus risk. <laughs> and survival is the reward if you outweigh all the risks correctly. The word abduction is sounds like dramatic and scary, but that's what it was. I wasn't like, I'm going to go to New York and be a prostitute. Bye. Like, that's not what happened. I, I went to meet this boyfriend who was going to help me get an apartment. When I tell my story and I talk to people, especially friends and people who are close, I try to stress how how much of a lack of a choice it was. When you hear of trafficking situations where people are stuffed into trunks at Walmart, that's easy to sympathize. But when I say, I put myself on a Greyhound and I went, then all of a sudden, I'm not the victim anymore. They're like, well, you chose that. Okay, but I did not choose with the correct information. I didn't have all of the facts up front. I didn't get to make a choice. He made that choice for me. And then I was just stuck in it between the violence and the fantasy of love. <laughs> One of the things that my pimp actually said to me on a regular basis, but he said it to me pretty quickly after I got there, um, when I was just kind of asking him, like, why didn't you just be honest? I asked him, I said, why weren't you just honest with me? Why didn't you just tell me? And I think it angered him that I questioned his authority, you know, and because he was in charge and he owned me at that point. But my pimp looked at me and said, your father didn't do his job and that's why you're here with me and that's why I'm your dad now. It was so true. My dad wasn't around, wasn't a father to me. He, if, if he was there, it wasn't to talk to us. It wasn't to be around us. It wasn't to be involved in our lives. Um, my parents didn't get divorced until well after I had moved out at 18. He was equally as absent in his presence as he would have been if he wasn't there. That was kind of where it became hard to decipher what was true and what was not. Because my pimp is saying something to me that is 100% true. My father did not do his job and that is probably why I ended up there. 
how can I sit here and say this man is doing, telling me things that aren't, when the things that he's telling me are true? The thing he's using truth to manipulate me. It made it seem like, you know, he used to say, I'm the only one that ever cares about you. I'm the only one that will ever care about you. I was about 30 months or so into the trafficking. At this point, I was the bottom. I was the main girl. I was the foundation. That's why they call you the bottom. <laughs> I had struggled quite a bit with some health issues while I was in the trafficking. There was at one point, my trafficker got me pregnant and then forced me to have an abortion, told me I could, I could choose if I wanted to have an abortion or, or die. Uh, I'm, I'm here so you can kind of <laughs> figure out what choice. But and I was dealing with my third round of kidney stones uh, since I had been in the trafficking, it was probably a combination of the horrible lifestyle <laughs> that I was living and all the soda I drank. I had been puking and sick for over 48 hours, and I looked at my trafficker and I said, can you please take me to the hospital? Just please take me in. And he was like, if you make your money tonight, I'll take you in the morning. So <laughs> I worked the rest of the night vomiting in alleys in Manhattan. And the next morning, he finally did take me to the emergency room. I was there. They tried several different things, medications to try to fix it. It didn't work. So they had to do like more of an invasive procedure to try to get that kidney stone to break up because it was just too large to pass through on its own. I was at the emergency room for almost 12 hours. So by the time they discharged me, it was nine o'clock at night. I slept on the bench in the lobby of the emergency room for two and a half hours because he didn't show up to pick me up until almost 11.30. And as we were driving away from the hospital, I was telling him, there's no way that I can work tonight, especially with having an injury in that region and then having to use that region to work. It was just not going to, it was not going to work out. He was yelling and screaming. At one point he backhanded me. And when he hit me, his pinky ring actually cut my eyeball open. He hit me so hard <laughs> on the left side of my face that the right side of my nose started bleeding. So I'm sitting there now, my eyes cut open, my nose is bleeding, there's just, it's pouring out. And he pulls up to a corner and he throws my duffel bag out of the car and he hands me $7 and he says, get yourself some food before you make my money. So I took that $7 and I walked into the train station to change my clothes and I hopped on a train to Manhattan. I think I was just done. I really thought that the whole three years that we had been through at that point that he would have respected me enough to not make me go out and work after kidney stone removal. <laughs> like it just, that wasn't the case though. He didn't, he didn't respect me. He didn't care for me. He didn't love me. Like he said he did not, not when it was standing in the way of his money. I think I figured it up. Um, I was trafficked in 14 States. I had well over 500 sexual partners, bruises, busted lips, 16 staples, multiple bones broken. I paid my pimp over $500,000 and I left with nothing. That's insane. <laughs> I walked around Manhattan crying, 
and some man, I am convinced today that he's an angel. I, I don't think it was a human. <laughs> he walked up to me and he said, you're not dirty. You're clean. You have unclean clothes. So you're not homeless. He said, why are you crying? And I verbally diarrheaed the last three years <laughs> in about five minutes. And he said, come with me. And I mean, what else could happen at this point? Right? So I go with him. He takes me to his apartment. He gives me $50. He let me take a shower. He made me dinner. He said, my wife's going to be home from work soon. So you need to go. Cause I'm not going to be able to explain why you're here. And I said, okay, bye. And I took that $50 and I bought a Greyhound ticket. A great <laughs> Greyhound brought me in. Greyhound will take me out. And while I was on the Greyhound bus, I called the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The Human Trafficking Hotline set me up with a connection in Alabama. Her name was Tawan McCarty. Uh, she was this woman who had started this program and she was going to save me and it was going to be great. When I got to Tawan's house, nobody knew that she had relapsed. And she continued to traffic me and exchange sex with me for her drugs and her cocaine and her false identities. And that continued for another two and a half, three weeks after I got out of the trafficking, where I then ran again in the middle of the night to a 24 seven gas station, gas station with the subway. <laughs> and I actually got into the well house after that point, which was, should have been the original contact somehow. the lines just got mixed up. The well house really helped get me back on track. It had counselors there as well as group counseling. And it was, it was a house full of women survivors that had been through a lot of the same thing. And so that was, I think coming out and going straight into that program, minus a couple weeks in the middle, that was a big part of, of my healing was like, okay, so it's not just me. I'm not the only one who fell for this. I'm not the only one who believed that these things could be true. I'm not the only one who really believed a whore was all I was ever going to be. Saying that now isn't as much of a sting, but admitting that back then was, I felt like I had let him control who I was, even to myself. I knew the tricks always saw me as a prostitute, but it bothered me that I now saw myself as a prostitute because that's not who I wanted to be. And, and now I know that's not who I am. It took some therapy and some time, some praying. Trafficking, especially sex trafficking is so specific. It shocks a lot of people. Even, you know, I could tell you today, almost three years out of the trafficking, I'm still very much in love with my pimp. I still cry. I still mourn that relationship. I'm still heartbroken over the loss of the relationship that I thought I had, over the care that I, that I thought that I had. I don't have sexual relationships with anybody in my life anymore. I just, I don't even date. Um, online dating is almost off limits. I did learn my lesson the second time. <laughs> I don't share my address. I don't even use my real identification online. I kind of have reclused. I 
being able to step back and look back at the situation now, I can see where there may have been some divine intervention. It just takes time because when you're in the trafficking, you're so disconnected from reality. You're so secluded and, and you're not in the real world anymore. Uh, you live in a, in a very violent sexual, like it's just every day, all day long. So what I thought was a small price to pay, you know, cause I was like, well, okay, I'm getting beat, but I have someone to protect me. So I'm good. You know, I didn't think about the fact that my child was gone because it was so busy trying to survive. I didn't even have time to think about my kid. And so getting out of the trafficking, it took a lot of living in shelters and having other people provide for me while I figured out how to live life again. When I first, my first few weeks out of the trafficking, I cried every single day every single day. And I remember the lady walked up to me and she said, why are you so upset? And I was like, what do people do all day? Like, I don't, I don't remember. Like, what am I supposed to do with like all these hours? <laughs> because there's nobody trying to have sex with me right now. So when I made that call to the national human trafficking hotline, just the fact that somebody said, we're going to get you out. I remember that was what she said. We're going to get you out. And I was kind of thinking, okay, <laughs> let's see if it can happen. Because I, I was so just scared at that point. I felt like I had already trusted enough strangers. <laughs> but having someone who genuinely wanted to help and genuinely cared for no reason. There was no payback. She didn't get any reward for getting me out of that situation. But having someone who cared enough, not only to get you out of the situation, but to help you get somewhere safe. You know, the well house is now where people are sent through the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Tawan, has, that situation has rectified itself. <laughs> so that, that connection has been repaired, that bridge is there. And the well house, especially, it's, it's hard going in. It's hard going in, because that first, couple months I mean you have no cell phone everything is taken from you it is a safe house out in the middle of nowhere with no physical address that's but you're also on acreage with porch swings and lakes and peace and quiet and safety and people who are there to help heal and and kind of repair some of that self-confidence, self-identity, self-worth, and just kind of make you feel like a human again and kind of make you feel like you matter again. Because I was discardable for three years. I, at any point, he could have thrown me away and it would have made no difference to him or anybody else that was involved in my life at that point. And so to suddenly kind of matter again, to hear my real name, again. My name was changed as soon as I was taken. What? I just, I hadn't mattered up until then. I, I hadn't been an individual. <laughs> I did some time at the well house, but I wanted to reconnect with my older son that had been signed over at the beginning of the trafficking. My goal was to get him back living with me. So I relocated 
Unfortunately, my trafficker found me while I was located there, so I had to move again. I moved to Florida <laughs> because I thought, what's better than the beach? <laughs> I lived in Florida for a little while, and I ended up getting pregnant with my son. That relationship didn't work out. Florida didn't work out. After I got pregnant with my son, I just needed to relocate somewhere that was a little bit easier to get my life started over and get put back together. Where I'm at now, the the church that I'm a part of and the community that I found here has really stepped in. They've done the work of trying to step in and, and help take care of me. I've I was gifted a vehicle. Uh, my first house was through a program that supports single mothers. Going on maternity leave as a single mom is like not possible. Just so the church paid all of my bills and completely took care of everything for two and a half months so that I could take a maternity leave when I had my son. I'm enrolled full-time in college. I just finished my last semester with a 3.7 GPA. I'm getting ready to, to transfer schools now and of that help and that that push to be able to move forward and have people step in behind me, I was able to then move on. And now I've gotten my own house that I, I didn't need a community program to help me get into. And then on top of that, there are lawyers. These lawyers who work through this clinic are providing all of their services 100% free. They are filing to get the guardianship of my son returned. They are representing me in other legal cases that I've got just stemming from the trafficking. And it's been a blessing. I My seven-year-old would have never been able to come home if it would have relied on my finances. Because... I have a house, I have a car, I have a job, I can take care of him, but I couldn't have afforded the legal fees. You know, I have prostitution charges on my record that are not accurate as to who I am as a person. Those things were things that happened to me. To have that those lawyers offer their time for, to rectify a situation that they did not cause has been an amazing blessing in my life. I'm excited to have both my boys. I need something good to come out of it. I'm ready for it to have a purpose. As soon as I have both my boys home and we're at a, a level of normalcy and we've kind of gotten into a routine of things, I would like to add in a foster child or two or seven. Whatever happens is fine. I've, I've already got two boys, so we'll just throw some extra boys in. <laughs> That's the route I want to take as, as far as my personal plan for prevention that childhood trauma and I think if I could stop that from happening maybe at the root I probably can't stop guys from paying for prostitutes but I could stop a couple of kids from having to have a crappy life. <laughs>